Well, we find ourselves in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I'll read these verses, and uh, then we'll get to uh, studying this passage together. Join me in reading Romans 12, 1 and 2. If you don't have a copy of God's Word on your phone, go ahead and grab that pew Bible in front of you. Just encourage you to study uh, with us. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Read along with me. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And thus sends us reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Well, I saw a movie recently where the message passed on from the uh, teen hero to one of the big bad guys was pretty simple. The message was, stop being a jerk. It was a simple phrase that transformed the character to fight with the good guys. All he needed to realize was that he just should be kind. Well, our our culture tells us this again and again, from yard signs to messaging and entertainment. It certainly doesn't matter what you believe, simply that you're kind, that you're a good neighbor. What actually matters and what you need to believe in order to be kind admittedly does morph with the times. It used to mean that you could be kind and still think that something like, Homosexuality or transgenderism was wrong and against God. But the cultural pressures against this view are immense today. And so you have some pastors like Andy Stanley and even the Roman Catholic Church through the Pope evolving on these issues. Because after all, they simply don't want to be jerks, right? This shouldn't surprise us because many Christians for years have practically taught sound doctrine What you believe doesn't matter all that much. Knowing what you believe isn't nearly as important as simply living out a good life. In other words, just be kind. It's Mr. Rogers, won't you be my neighbor, Christianity. But in Romans 12 through 15, we find something rather interesting. We get a whole bunch of practical commands in this section. Up to this point, Paul has primarily given us a doctrinal understanding of the gospel. But starting in Romans 12 through 15, there are command after command after command. This is what some people call the practical application section of this letter. But we see in this text that they all hinge on what came before, on the doctrine that Paul had explained. They all hinge on knowing, as we see, the mercies of God. And so Paul grounds right living in right thinking. This is normal Christianity. But what's also fascinating about our text is that this is not a call to cafeteria Christianity, kind of take it or leave it, pick and choose what you want. This is not a call to get saved and then have occasional interest in God when you might want to. 
No, Romans 12, 1 and 2 is a call to live your whole life as a sacrifice to God. So normal Christianity is to live your life as a living sacrifice, according to our text. Learning what God wants you to think and how God wants you to live. See, normal Christianity is always all-in Christianity. We live a life of repentance, constantly turning away from sin and self-glory, and we have a settled trust in God's power to save us through Christ. Normal Christianity sounds a bit radical to a just-be-kind world. Because in a lot of ways, our world has adopted the worldview of Hinduism. It's this idea that worshiping a specific God isn't nearly as important as being good. And since there are many gods already, many Hindus and many Americans, frankly, are quite happy to add in their own version of Jesus worship. It's like the sailors in the book of Jonah, right? They cry out, please just pray to whatever God you serve and maybe he'll help us in the midst of the storm. I recently read this uh, from a faithful missionary in India, and this is how he described Hinduism. He said, the proper name of Hinduism is Sanatana Dharma, or the eternal way of life. You can have whatever beliefs you like, but you are expected to live out Dharma, or good living. Your religion is expected to participate in the values and customs and organization of society. In fact, if a Hindu finds you to be a person of character and propriety, it does not matter to him that much if you have differing theological beliefs. What matters first and foremost is that you are a person of dharma or kindness. Within Hinduism itself, you can identify hundreds of different religious traditions. And so along with Hinduism, many in the West want to separate out what you believe from how you live. We're told it's best to keep religious convictions quiet and personal and whatever you want them to be and just be kind. Live out some dharma. But the moment people realize that Jesus calls for exclusive worship, that he calls for a life devoted to worshiping the one true God alone, that's when Jesus starts to become offensive to our world. But, beloved, this is normal Christianity. It is often offensive and seen as radical because Jesus clearly calls us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so as we pick up Romans again and dive into the beginning of the practical application section, Paul gives us this short little paragraph before us in verses 1 and 2 that, that acts as a great summary of how the Christian life should be lived. And as we study, we'll see four components of normal Christianity. Four components of normal Christianity. These are descriptions of the normal Christian life. You might call them marks that help define how every Christian should live. Now, many different translations begin Romans 12, verse 1, with an often recurring word in scriptures, and it is the word, therefore. And the tried and true phrase you've probably heard before is anytime we see the word therefore, we need to look and see what it's there for. Yep. Therefore is always a part 
of a logical argument. It, it reminds us that we're about to read isn't just something isolated. It's not just this collection of interesting sayings. No, this builds specifically on the arguments that came before. That's why you have the word therefore. Premise A, premise B, therefore conclusion, right? So that's why we use the word therefore to tie these things together. And so first, normal Christians, point one here, recall God's abounding mercies. Christians recall God's abounding mercies. Think about Paul's whole train of thought throughout this letter. How he sets up the gospel to a, a church he, he's never met. How he starts with the sinfulness of sin and, and God's free gift of salvation in spite of their sin. And so we see really at the beginning of verse 1 a reminder that we are to recall God's abounding mercies. Now, as we look at the beginning of verse 1, there is much more here than just the word therefore. And in fact, the ESV reflects the Greek here and doesn't begin with the word therefore. He begins with these words. Go ahead and read with me. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. See, Paul begins with an appeal, an exhortation. It's, it's a winsome calling to action. He could have commanded, he could have certainly uh, told them this is what you need to do, but this is a, a uh, kind of a warm exhortation, a, hey, you really need to think this way based on the power of the gospel. And it is a command specifically given to who? What does it say? To brothers. You can say brothers and sisters here. He's not eliminating the ladies. And he's not using some slang for, for friends. He's not just saying, brothers, how's it going? You need to listen to this. The concept of brotherly and sisterly familial relationship is a rich theological construct that he's already talked about in this letter. For if we belong to Christ, if we have turned from sin and died to self and trust in Christ's sacrifice for our salvation, then we are part of God's family. Genuinely, brothers and sisters for eternity. Go ahead and actually go back to Romans 8, verse 14. Romans 8, verse 14. Romans 8, 14, Paul, Paul puts it like this. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Habba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You see, brothers is one, of the, is one of Paul's favorite words for fellow Christians. Your church family is literally your forever family. Adopted families use that word, right? You adopt, get adopted into your forever family. This is what we are. This is a language of adoption is even used in Scripture to describe Christians. We are adopted into God's family. We're literally brothers, as it were, with Christ, and then brothers and sisters with one another. And so why is it that we don't know and love our brothers and sisters at church as closely as we should? 
Just as a family pulls together to help care for one another, protecting the vulnerable, celebrating joys, so too should our church family. God's abounding mercies have brought people of all different ethnicities, all different ages, all different walks of life, and united us together in Christ. Paul has celebrated this reality in the last three chapters. Romans 9 through 11 speaks of God's power to do whatever God wants to do. And in this instance, he talks about his sovereign choice to preserve only a remnant, only a small remnant of his chosen people, Israel, and instead to operate in all of the nations. Remember, the word Gentiles is effectively meaning what? Nations. It's not just saying kind of a group of people that's not Jews. It means all of the ethnos, all of the nations of the world. God chooses some and he hardens others because God wants the gospel to spread to all the nations. Go ahead and look at Romans 11, verse 11. Paul says this about the Jews stumbling and kind of having uh, a hardening, as it were, mostly. There's still a remnant of Jews, of course, but who believe in Jesus. But he says this, Romans 11, 11. So I ask, did they, the Jews, stumble in order that they might fall? Well, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And so Paul explains that the time of the nations or the time of the Gentiles is to create a common brotherhood of men that transcends all different places and times and peoples and languages where Jew and Gentile and all nations are separated no more, where men from all nations share in a common father, where we recall then God's abounding mercies to us as a people. But that's not all that's in this call to remember in the beginning of Romans 12, 1. Go ahead and look back there, Romans 12, 1 again. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, based on all the things I've said, brothers, by the mercies of God. See, Paul wants our attention specifically to focus back on mercy. But why mercies? Why not grace? Grace has been much more pervasive of a theme in Romans. Perhaps you should think a little bit about the definitions and differences between grace and mercy for a second. Think about grace, right? Grace, by definition, is a gift that we don't deserve, like salvation or forgiveness of sins or the substitute death of Christ. But mercy is a withholding of God's just punishment. Mercy is God holding back what is rightly ours. Going to give you an example. I have grace on my children when I give them two cookies after dinner for a treat rather than the obligatory one. That's grace. It's a gift they don't deserve. I have mercy on my children when I choose not to discipline them for talking back to their mother. I withhold just discipline in this instance. Paul's focus here is on God's mercy, his withholding of his just punishment for sin. 
And why plural mercies here? Why does he talk about the mercies of God? Why does he want us to remember the plural mercies of God? Well, perhaps because every sin requires God's mercy, his restraint from punishment. And and every day he sustains life. There are literally billions of sins going on in the billions of people's lives in this world. And so therefore, God's mercies is billions of times expanded every single day. Now, to remember the richness of God's mercy, I want you to go back to Romans chapter 1 and see a few verses with me. Kind of remember where we came from, why it is that it is so incredible to behold God's mercy as withholding of punishment for, for me. Look at Romans 1 verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What we have due, what is coming, is wrath. Because we love to suppress the truth about God. This describes the common malady of humanity. He describes humanity as self-worshippers, inventors of evil, to satisfy our flesh. And so he says, as he looks on the nature of humanity, look at Romans 1.24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, talking about dishonorable sexual passions of a homosexual nature. And then verse 28, he continues, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You see, even if you don't know God's law, you're still lost. This describes us. Romans 2, 12 speaks of Gentiles even who didn't know about God's law it says for all have sinned without the law and will also perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law and so his conclusion is it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or some part of some other nation verse chapter 3 verse 9 his conclusion is simple what then are we Jews any better off no not at all for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And still, mercies abound every day. I mean, we're still here, are we not? The fact that you are breathing, that God has chosen to sustain your life, reflects that God is merciful. Today, multiple times over. This planet still spins. Tides come in and out. Seasons cycle to water the crops that give us food. And so Paul reminds us, brothers and sisters in Christ, remember the profound mercies that God has shown, not just to you, but to the whole world. And in spite of deserving wrath, like the rest, God chooses to grant us his righteousness he chooses to declare us to be right before him why how verse 21 chapter 3 verse 21 but now 
the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. It's, it's apart from the, the things that you do to try and earn God's favor. No, verse 22, he says, the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe in Christ. And the rest of chapters three through eight explain the grace of God and salvation, but it all started because of God's mercies because he withholds his wrath that is just for us so that he can grant us forgiveness and grace and even declare us to be right before him because of what Christ has accomplished. So before we get to our first command in Romans 12, you can go back there, Paul settles our motivation to act as a Christian acts, not for kindness sake, not for the goals of dharma, but squarely on the mercies of God alone. Good Romans 11, 32 and 33. For God has consigned all to disobedient that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So do you realize the depth of God's mercy in your life today. We're guilty, condemned criminals before God. We have broken his law. And God says that before him, for example, murder and anger have the same root cause and thus the same punishment when the standard is perfection. And so every single one of us has fallen short. Every single one of us is a sinner deserving of God's punishment, his wrath. And in spite of our judgment, in spite of our guilty verdict, which should have come our way as if we were a murderer, God's mercy, his withholding of his just punishment, opened the way for reconciliation, opened a way to be made right with him. It opened a way to be right before God, by God, for the glory of God. And so first, recall God's abounding mercies. That's how he sets up all of what he's going to say in the final few chapters. Second, offer yourself as a sacrifice. Number two, offer yourself as a sacrifice. So what is the purpose of remembering what you deserve before a holy God? What is the reason to focus on God's mercy in your life? Well, it's very straightforward. It's so that we can live as if we're a sacrifice to God. Jesus put it like this in Luke 9, 23. If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross daily, and what? Follow me. As Paul puts it in Galatians 2, 20, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And as we now read in Romans 12, verse 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. 
Well, there was an odd interpretation of this verse that crept into early Christian circles, and it focused on the word, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And so the idea was that truly holy men deprived their physical bodies and literally gave up all but the bare necessities to devote their lives to some sort of private spiritualized worship, as if that was the pinnacle of God honoring, uh, a God-honoring life. It's where this idea came that priests and nuns were to be celibate and married, as it were, to God. It's also where we get the colorful characters that we find in the early church, like Simeon the Stylite. Simeon the Stylite, he's a fascinating character. You see, after becoming a well-known monk, Simeon attracted so many crowds that would come to him and seek wisdom and perhaps get some guidance for their life and maybe listen to some of his uh, long prayers. And in an effort to get away from the crowds, Simeon the Stylite built a 10-foot platform atop an old pillar so that he could live on said platform. A platform 10 foot high and about this long, uh, this wide, with a railing around it. And he survived off of delivered food for up to between 35 and 40 years on top of a platform near Aleppo in Syria. In fact, you can go visit the site today. Why? Because Simeon thought the deprivation of the body produced spiritual good. He, he, he understood this to be very literal in a, in a wrong sense, that you are to present your bodies as if your physical bodies themselves are to be a living sacrifice to God. Perhaps the body alone was to be a sacrifice on the altar of personal spiritual piety. But unfortunately for Simeon and other monks, the rest of Romans 12 completely contradicts this understanding and this interpretation. As Paul speaks of every Christian's responsibility to love and serve his church family, to be engaged in all sorts of different activities that God has for us. His point uh, is to present your entire self as a living sacrifice, body, soul, spirit to God our creator, and to do all for his glory. And what did we say last week was the chief purpose of humanity? to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's another way to say, offer our lives as a living sacrifice. And sacrifices, of course, require a death, and so we are to put to death sin, put to death living for self-glory, and instead live for God-glory. And we must seek true joy in Christ rather than in what we think will make us happy. And so the concept is simple. Christians are to live in whatever situation we find ourselves in, in whatever career God plans for us, in whatever activities we might pursue for this season of life, we are to live as if we are a sacrifice always for God. This sacrifice then is described with three adjectives. Three adjectives. Go ahead and look down at the text. You present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So living, holy, and acceptable are the three adjectives. So first, it's living. This is not any different than the other two adjectives. It's not any different than holy and acceptable. In fact, uh, even though our translation puts it before the word sacrifice, in the Greek, it comes after the word sacrifice and is exactly the same as holy and acceptable. So we are to present our bodies as a sacrifice, which is living, holy, and acceptable. It's probably the, the literal way to understand this. 
So does this imply then that unlike an animal sacrifice, which dies, our lives are to be an ongoing living sacrifice? Well, it certainly doesn't mean less than that. You're not to kill yourself here for God. But I, I think the implication is that it's a little bit deeper than that. The Christian has a new life. We've been regenerated. We've been made new. Uh, we have a new life in Christ. This isn't something we, we do to earn our salvation, but it's a reflection of our new reality. So our obedience, our sacrificial service to God is to live for the glory of God, and it's always responsive to God's first work in us to make us alive. We are then able to have a living, a new life as a sacrifice to God. That reflects what we see in 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us, right? So it's the idea that God is the initiator of our salvation and his love, and so we are simply responding to God's work in us. And so every Christian alive in Christ is to live as a sacrifice for God. That's what it means. Further, our self-sacrifice should be holy, right? That's another description. We are to be holy. That's our next point. Holy, meaning pure, set apart for God. In the Old Testament, the offerings of the Jews were said to be a stench to God when they offered the sick and the lame animals instead of offering their best animals. You see, what they would do is they would take the animals that they'd have to kill anyways because they were somehow insufficient or going to die, and they would give those animals to God instead of giving God their best. It was cheaper. It was a, a way to kind of cheat the system. Further, even if the, the Jews offered the best of their flocks, often God's people simply went through the motions of offering sacrifice and doing these other things while their hearts remained and celebrated evil. Again, God abhorred their unholy offerings. I mean, just listen to Isaiah 1, verse 11 through 17. Just listen. I do not delight, God says, in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of the convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, that's in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen, because your hands are full of blood, right? They, they are not walking with God. They are saying one thing and living a different way. So God says, wash yourself, make yourself clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, and learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. You see, God is concerned not just about doing the right things, but to doing it with the right actions. To not be saying that we love God while having our lives reflect otherwise. So our living sacrifice to God isn't just doing some things. It's to do our whole to, to live our whole lives as if we're holy to God, set apart for God. The pursuit of personal holiness was always essential for a sacrifice that was acceptable to God. And so thus we have our third adjective, acceptable, acceptable. Our lives are acceptable before God when we walk closely with him. 
when we live as we were designed to live, to live for his glory above our own, when we're concerned with eradicating our own sin, when we live as if we belong to God and not ourselves, when we live as his children who've been shown mercy upon mercy upon mercy. This isn't radical, irrational Christianity. This is normal Christianity. In fact, Paul finishes the verse to say, offer yourself as a sacrifice, which is reasonable worship. Point D, this is reasonable worship. Go ahead and look back at verse 1. Right, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. If you look down at the footnote in your translation, you'll see an alternate translation is, which is your rational service or your reasonable worship. You see, the Greek word that ESV chose to translate as spiritual is the Greek word logikos. has the same meaning of logical or reasonable, which seems to be the best reading and makes sense in the flow of this verse. Tom Schreiner, a commentator, writes this, Paul emphasizes that yielding one's whole self to God is eminently reasonable. Since God has been so merciful... Failure to dedicate one's life to him is the height of folly and irrationality. And yet, how easy is it for us to think our careers, our earthly families, our homes, our finances, our our football teams, our Roblox avatars, if you know what that is, you're a true nerd, how easy is it for all these things to become so much more important than God? We sacrifice so much to get what we want, to celebrate the things that have little bearing on eternity. We are willing to sacrifice ourselves for far less than God. Well, the only reasonable sacrifice we ought to make is for our Creator. And yet time and again, the world just doesn't seem to understand why would anyone sacrifice their lives to honor God above self? Well, we know uh, R.C. Sproul's father died shortly before he made the decision to go to seminary and become a minister. And this was actually shortly after R.C. himself became a Christian. His father had been the president of a large corporate bankruptcy firm in the city of Pittsburgh. And R.C. told the story like this. The name of the firm was R.C. Sproul's and Sons. It was begun by my grandfather, whose name was R.C. Sproul, and it was continued by my father, R.C. Sproul Jr. I was the heir so that pro- to that prosperous company. I had only to get my CPA license in order to step into the presidency. When I expressed my plans to go into the ministry, I was descended upon by a battery of attorneys with one message. Are you out of your mind? You're being handed a company that guarantees you prosperity, and you want to go into the ministry? They spoke to me with great passion, but I was not tempted. 
They did not understand that I was a sinner who had experienced the mercies of God. And that same God had called me to serve him. Do you see, the only reasonable response is to live to serve God above all else. That, of course, doesn't mean that you can't own your own successful company. But what are you sacrificing to get it? We're all likely sacrificing something. Who or what are we sacrificing to? Because your only reasonable sacrifice is to give yourself to God. Well, there's a third component of normal Christianity. Number three, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. Our next point is quite literally taken from the beginning of verse two. It's a simple and straightforward command that helps us understand what it means to offer our lives as a living sacrifice. As we look at the world, we, we understand that everyone has, was created to, to be a worshiper. It's just a matter of what we're worshiping. If it isn't Christ, then we'll be worshiping something. And so as much as we are grateful for God's sustaining hand in our world, as much as we're grateful for really the fabulous wealth and that we're blessed by an incredibly successful economy in the, in the world that we live in today, we should not first be like the world, but first be antithetical to the world. And so we are war warned very simply, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. This doesn't mean we can't dress like the world or play cards or go to the movies. The problem with so many fundamentalist interpretations of the Bible is that there's this weird idea that 1950s American culture and, and the King James English is supposedly God's ideal, which it is assuredly not. Well, that's not all. Uh, it's not um, the, God's ideal. In fact, we're commanded to not be conformed to this world, and that includes the world of 1950s America. We're supposed to be vigilant against drifting along with what the world worships. 1 John 2.15 sums up this basic idea for us. 1 John 2.15 and 16. The Apostle John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. See, the sexual lusts, the covetousness, the, the pride that so is ingrained in everything we see and do, these things are not to be reflected in our lives as Christians. These are the deep motivations that, are, that our flesh craves. We all often crave sexual lust or covetousness or, or, or pride or, or some combination of the three. And yet we have to be those who recognize the worship of the world is to worship sexual lust, is to worship covetousness, and to worship pride. And we have to be those who are quick to turn and run the other way. There's a famous story from the life of Augustine that's appropriate here. 
Before Augustine became a Christian, he famously lived a profligate life. He was a wicked and immoral man, and much of his immorality centered on frequenting certain women in his city. Well, one day, shortly after he became a Christian, one of those women whom he used to have a relationship with saw him in the street, and she hurried up to greet him, and he saw her coming and quickly ran the other way, at which point she cried out, but Augustine, it's me. And to which he responded, I know, but it's not me. That old me is gone. Listen, we need to intentionally run from the draws and pulls of the world. It sucks us in like a powerful magnet. Simply by living with many who don't know Christ, if we don't actively swim upstream, we're going to float away with the rest of the world. Christianity requires us to go against the currents that we see all around us. Not enjoy the lazy river in the theme park. So who do you spend most of your time around? If they are not Christians, are you influencing them more for the sake of Christ or are they influencing you more for the sake of the world. So point three is do not be conformed to this world. And finally, number four, be transformed by renewing your mind. Be transformed by renewing your mind. Again, we fight the world not simply by standing firm and not simply by fortressing up behind a redoubt or or a thick wall of our traditions. We fight against the world by going on the offensive. That's what verse 2 is highlighting for us. Look at verse 2 with me. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, this word transformed is the same word we get the English metamorphosis from. It's the same word used to describe Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration uh, when God the Son's flesh was was pulled back to display his his radiant divine glory. Uh, The way we guard then against worldliness isn't always just standing behind our tradition. It's a constant renewing of our mind that transforms our hearts. We are passively said to be transformed when we renew our mind. It's why Paul started these verses with the simple reminder, therefore, based on the mercies of God, brothers, offer your life as a living sacrifice. It's the same basic idea. Right living in Christianity flows from right thinking about God and his gospel. We don't look for a church where we can get the fuzzy feelings a little bit more this week. We don't hop from one worship experience to the next, hoping to reignite a transformative passion in our lives. No, the sure biblical approach to significant and obvious transformation in our lives comes from a change in your thinking. 
It comes from learning and embracing sound doctrine. It's why we repeat our catechism in our, in our services. It's why I hope you guys can look and read and study the catechism on your own in your homes and, and remember these truths so that you are in, ingrained and, and sound doctrine just permeates your mind and your thinking so that as you know God better, your life begins to reflect what you know of God. Beloved, we need to renew our minds with biblical truths about God and how he wants us to live. And it's not just a transformed life that results from renewing your mind. It's also discerning God's will. Look at verse 2 again, right? So, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That word testing means to determine the quality of an item, to determine if it's authentic. In other words, the Christian is now equipped to determine if God's will, if what we're doing is God's will for our life. For example, a few years ago, a New Hampshire woman bought a painting for $4 from a thrift store. It turned out to be a lost masterpiece by an artist that I'd never heard of, but apparently is famous, by N.C. Wyeth. She had a praise, at this painting appraised and tested by the experts, and she sold the painting this last fall for $200,000. Quite an investment, I'd say, right? But without the expert evaluations, the painting would still be worth $4. See, those experts have a mind that's been trained to see things that most of us can't. And so it is with every single Christian. Through our renewed mind, through a new heart that the Lord has given us, we can discern God's will. And I'm not saying that at every point God will impress on our hearts a feeling to, to know his will or get the liver shivers, as you might say, right? Or that we should lay out a fleece and it'll keep it wet or dry depending on what we ask. No, God has shown us his will in his word. And Christians are those who are able to set the direction of our lives by God's revealed will. We know that God wants us to be sanctified, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. We know that God wants us to be submissive to authority, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 15. We know that God wants us to suffer well, 1 Peter 3, 17. We know God wants us to be thankful, 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. We know God wants us to worship with our church family, Hebrews 10, 25. The more we renew our minds by God's word, the easier it is for our lives to be transformed as we follow God's will. And his will as we see in closing, is what is good and acceptable and perfect, right? It is good. It is intrinsically good. It is divine good. It is holy good. So Christian, you will want to walk in holiness, not toe the line between good and evil, for it is God's will for you to follow him. And you will want to be acceptable to God. We're not concerned with being accepted by the world, but accepted by God. We live for his glory, not our own, and not the world's. And, and finally, we are to be perfect, right? It is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. The perfect goal, the end goal of all of life is to do God's will. And when we walk with the Lord and we aim to serve him, living according to his will, we are not put to shame. We don't miss out on what the world has to offer. We aren't anxious or worried whether or not God will stay with us to the end. We are settled, safe, 
and secure in the arms of our Creator and Savior. So as we prepare for communion, I want you to remember afresh today, the normal Christian life to the worldly seems radical. It seems weird, but it's always best. So recall God's abounding mercies. Offer your life as a sacrifice, living, acceptable, holy to God. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we have had this chance to study your word, that we've been reminded of why it is that we, can, we should focus on your mercies and your grace that's evident in our lives so that we can then be motivated to love you as you have loved us, that we can be motivated to offer our lives as a sacrifice, constantly aiming to glorify, serve, and honor you. And Lord, one of the most profound things that we do on a monthly basis in our church is to gather together and to take your supper, to remember through this communion act that we are one with Christ. And as we're one with Christ, we look back at at your work that you accomplished while you were hanging on the cross, God the Father pouring out the wrath for all of our sins on his Son is a profound work, and it is a profound work that didn't end with the crucifixion, but culminated in the resurrection. And so as we take this supper, we also look up, remembering that you have uh, been raised from the dead, and, and you are now seated at the right hand of the Father, and we now have access directly and intimately into your presence. But this feast is also a time of introspection, where we look within and we think carefully about our own trials and struggles and things that we need to confess to you, remembering that you have paid it all. We also look around as we are grateful for our church family, grateful for a forever family, our brothers and sisters in Christ can love each other and care for each other. And as we all partake of this one body, we celebrate how God has brought us together. We celebrate that God's work of salvation extends to all of us, no matter where we're from. And finally, we look forward and we anticipate that great day when you will return. Thank you for your supper. Thank you for the chance we have to celebrate today. And so we rejoice and we celebrate the goodness of God we ask that you would help us to stay motivated to serve him as a living sacrifice. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.